When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us for another episode. We've got a good one for you today. I think you're going to love it. Two quick things first. For all of our, all you turkey hunters out there, a lot of upland hunters like to turkey hunt in the spring, I think. Good way to kill the off-season and turkey hunting. I've never done it, but sounds like a blast, and I know a lot of people that have done it. So for you turkey hunters, Project Upland earlier this week announced Actually, the folks at Northwoods Collective, which if you don't know, is sort of the umbrella over Project Upland and now Morning Thunder, uh, the launch of the new website, MorningThunderHunt.com. For turkey hunting fanatics, people that want to know more about turkey hunting, you're going to want to check this out. I think there's a little teaser video out there. I've actually seen some of the behind the scenes unreleased turkey hunting content. Very cool. If you've, if you've come to love Project Upland and the Project Upland videos and style and you love turkey hunting, you will absolutely love the stuff coming from MorningThunderHunt.com. It's going to be awesome, and I think you're going to want to check that out. So head over to, 
Again, one more time, morningthunderhunt.com to check that out. Secondly, we are in the midst of our first full week. I guess we're in the midst of our second week, depending on when you're listening to this, of the first ever Project Dublin podcast giveaway. I haven't yet determined the prize package. I know I told everybody on last week's show that I didn't know what we were going to give away, but don't worry. Have no fear. We'll, we'll get you something. We will we'll dig through the Project Duplin merchandise bin and we'll pull out a couple things and we'll make sure the, the winner of the contest walks away happy. So to enter the podcast, you can do one of any number of things. We're kind of freewheeling it this time. We may try some, try some different things with uh, contests in the future, but for this time, all you got to do is as many of these things as you want to do. It could be as few as one or it could be all of them, but rate the podcast on whatever you're listening to. If it's iTunes, you can click you can click the number of stars that you want to give the show. So rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, share the post when we post it on Facebook or the website. And I think that's it. So rate, review, subscribe, and share. Any one of those things, do that. We'll find you. We'll randomly select one winner and that winner will be the winner of the Project Devil Podcast. If you are technologically challenged, you can even go so far as to send me a message. Look me up, Nick Larson. Look me up on Facebook or Instagram at nilarson13. Just look for a Nick Larson that has nothing but upland hunting pictures. You'll be able to find me. Send me a message. Say, Nick, I don't know how to do any of those things that you mentioned on the podcast, but I want to enter into the giveaway, so enter me, and I will get you in the contest. Now, let's move on to today's episode. Today's episode is actually going to be part one of a two-part series, and that wasn't exactly by design, but while we were recording our first interview, somebody actually showed up at our guest's door that he was not expecting at that time. So our interview ended abruptly, but it was kind of, we were pushing pushing the upper limits of the, the timeline for the podcast anyway, so we used it as an excuse to turn this into a two-part. So today, you'll hear part one, and we will be recording part two very soon. Today's guest is Greg Elliott of dogsanddoubles.com. If you're not familiar with dogsanddoubles.com, you're going to want to check it out. It's got a ton of information specifically on double guns, mainly vintage double guns. Vintage double guns are Greg Elliott's specialty. He's he's very knowledgeable. He does a lot of buying and selling. He's he's does a lot of buying and selling at auctions for personal estates, all sorts of stuff. So he really has a good handle, good firm handle on the vintage gun market, which is why we wanted to have him on the show. And he's also a passionate upland bird hunter. So naturally it was a good fit. So today's episode, we get into a little bit of introductory stuff, talk about Greg's upbringing into upland hunting, where he sort of got this fire lit under him for vintage double guns. And we start to scratch the surface of vintage double guns before our interview ends somewhat abruptly. But I think you're going to love it. So I won't spoil any more. And we'll jump right into today's episode. Stay tuned for part two in the coming weeks. At this time, let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Greg Elliott of dogsanddoubles.com. All right. And we are now joined on the Project Upland podcast by Greg Elliott of dogsanddoubles.com. Greg, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate it. It's uh, I think this is going to be a fun conversation, yeah. and uh, you and I have you and I have 
talked a few times before and, and tried to uh, set the stage a little bit for uh, for what we're going to cover and we'll uh, we'll cover cover lots of stuff about of course of course dogs and double guns today but uh, we'll, we'll focus we'll focus pretty heavily on guns and and see what we get through and and uh, whatever whatever else we feel left over we'll uh, we'll hope to have you on again sometime. Cool, awesome, sounds good. Yeah. So it's uh it's Saturday morning. I got a full cup of coffee. Uh, of wh- where are, I know you're out east, Greg. Where where exactly are you? So I live north of Boston. Okay. So uh, yeah, right now I'm up, up I'm in Portland, Maine, right now. But uh, I live north of Boston. I'm, I'm at my mom's house. So. Okay. Cool. But, uh, so so from from uh, I, I know you're I know you're an upland hunter. Well, I guess I guess. I know that, but but not everybody else does. So why don't why don't we just start there? Um, I, I guess before before we dive into that, I'll ask you: was it was it guns or or upland hunting that that came first? We got we got dogs in the background. That's good. I've got a yeah. I got a, I got a, a setter laying on the couch next to me, so he could uh, he could bark at any time. Yeah. So uh, as far as I so I started out as a hunter and. Okay. Uh, I started, I was always, uh, I was always really interested in, uh, bird hunting when I was a kid, even though my family, I didn't grow up with any hunters in my family. My dad wasn't a hunter. And, uh, for some reason I was always just, I was always just really intrigued by, uh, upland hunting. I was actually also really interested in guns. I used to make my dad take me to gun shops when I was a kid so I could look at the shotguns, but it was really what happened. Um, we moved to Northern New Hampshire when I was uh, my freshman year in high school. And uh, so I had been living in Connecticut where there obviously wasn't a lot of hunting for wild birds. There was some, some stock bird stuff. But when we moved to Northern New Hampshire, all of a sudden I was in a place where there was, there was, uh, you know, there was grouse and there was woodcock. And we had them in, uh, there was a bunch of land up behind our house. We had them up there. And that's where I really sort of got into the hunting and everything. And then from there, uh, my interest in guns, once I became more of a hunter, it just sort of the two came together. And I became, uh, you know, pretty obsessed with both of them. And then after college, I did a lot of hunting out west. Um, and that just, again, just really spurred my interest in the guns. And then, like, Double Gun Journal magazine came out. And uh, so, the inter- you know, obviously, the Internet came on really strong with boards where you could find out about the guns. And sort of all, those, all that stuff came together and just really fueled my interest more and more in the guns. Um, Books came out about gun, you know, like Donald Dallas wrote a bunch of books about gun makers. So all that stuff just got me more and more into it. And uh, so, you know, it's kind of where it's led me. I've been pretty obsessed with it. Really, I've, I've been pretty hardcore obsessed with guns for like 20 years. Um, I spent a, a lot of time and a lot of money, you know, learning about them and buying them and trading them and chasing them and doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, I always, always appreciate people's stories and and you know certainly certainly where their where their upland hunting roots are but then <clears throat> sort of the things along the way that that sort of fuel that passion and and for many people it's dogs for many people it's guns you know for many people it's it's other things but but for you i i think it's both so we kind of touched on upland hunting double guns uh let's uh before we get too far into it let's talk about the dogs a little bit we heard one of them earlier yeah. So I, I've had hunting dogs. I got my first dog when I was probably 12 years old and, uh, it was actually a Brittany. And this is when we lived in Connecticut. And this is when I, I was really interested in hunting and bird dogs and all that kind of stuff. And 
uh, I got a Brittany and then we moved to Northern New Hampshire and I had the same Brittany and uh, I actually worked at Burger King in the summertime, saved up enough money to send her to a trainer and did all this stuff. It was never really a very good dog, but it was a, you know, it was a Brittany, it was a pointer and that was sort of my first experience with all that. Um, and then I got, uh, then I was sort of, I went off to college and I got out of the dogs and all that stuff for a while. And when I came back to it, um, I got a pointer. I was actually looking at different breeds of dogs. I was going to get a Vishla and then I was looking at Springer Spaniels. And then, uh, I saw my first English pointer and, uh, I was so amazed by what beautiful dogs they were and just how they, uh, how a lot vibrant and sort of agile they are in the field. And, uh, I got a pointer. Uh, that was probably 15 years ago. I got a, my first pointer. And then I've just had pointers ever since. Now I have two of them, uh, both out of the same kennel, a kennel called Superior Pointers in Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, that's what I, I like the pointers the most. I've hunted over a lot of different dogs, and uh, I definitely prefer the pointers overall. So Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, – I, I've uh, I've I've had the 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 good fortune of of hunting with a few English pointers and it's kind of you know as you say I mean it's it's an easy I think that it's an easy dog to sort of become enamored with just sort of the 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 way that they go about things and you, know, you mentioned the how vibrant they are I think that's actually a pretty pretty good word to describe the pointers that I've seen and obviously the ones that you have but. Um, Superior pointers in Wisconsin. That's in that's in Bayfield, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're up north. Okay, cool. That's uh, that's not too far from me, as I'm in I'm in Duluth, and uh, oh I've, yeah, cool. uh, I've started doing some more more hunting in northwestern Wisconsin. And I actually uh, I've I've come across the uh, that name, and I, you know, it's just one of those things where oh wow, there's a there's a guy breeding uh, English pointers in in Bayfield County in Wisconsin, and you know, I've never never spoken to him, but uh, maybe uh, might might have to. Uh, yeah, you like should. This. Yeah, uh, the guy that owns it's name is Mark Wenling. Uh, he's okay. a really cool guy, extremely knowledgeable uh, breeder, uh, experienced trialer, um, does a lot of training. And when I I looked at a lot of different kennels when I got the pointers I have now, and I've been out on the trial circuit and hung around that and stuff, so I know a lot of the trainers and stuff. Um, then I went to him. Just because he was extremely, uh, he was just very passionate about the breed and very knowledgeable about them. And uh, that's what impressed me the most. And then he just has beautiful dogs. If you go on his website and look at his dogs, his dogs are just absolutely gorgeous. Um, and they're not, in, they're not insanely expensive. They're not cheap, but uh, his dogs, there's a lot of LQ in his dogs. And a lot of dogs yep. with LQ in them can get super expensive. Sure. Uh, but they're great dogs. I've, you know, the ones I've had out of him have... Uh, Great personalities, very easy to train. You're not really training them. You just kind of expose them to what you want them to do. Um, just fantastic dogs. So Excellent. Yeah, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to get in touch with Mark. I'll, maybe I'll uh, lean on you a little bit to, uh, to make sure. that connection, but that could, be, could make for a cool podcast get a dog. in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from this quickly, but uh, I'll, I'll uh, ask you a couple more questions. Do you have, do you have male or female pointers? Um, they're both pointers. I'm sorry. They're both females. Both females. Okay. Okay. Cool. And what? Uh, what kind of? What size wise? What are they at? Uh, so they're both about 43 pounds. So. Um, okay. Okay. Cool. Nice. Nicely. Nicely built grouse dog for sure. Yeah, they're a little on the. You know, the the uh, female pointers. Obviously, they're a little smaller than the males. Yep. 
Um, yep. But yeah, they're not big dogs. They're 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 not small dogs. They're you know pretty average size. Um, handle themselves really well in the woods. Super dog. They're just they're just great dogs to hunt over. They're not. They're like uh, they're 150 yard dogs. So yep. you know if the cover's right, they're going to go out. They adjust really well to cover. Uh, they're just a breeze to handle. You know people that I hunt with can't believe how little I talk to them. Uh, how much I, how little I have to communicate with them. They just, uh, they, what's called, they stay in the pocket. So they stay in front of me. They, you know, they, they check in enough that they follow where I'm going, but they don't, they're not handy. So they're not, they're not at a hundred yards coming in, checking in at 20 yards, going back and forth. They're not, they're not, uh, yo-yoing like that. They, uh, you know, they'll come in at 75 yards, pick up where I am. Uh, so they're just, they're just a pleasure to hunt with. And it's one of those things where I've hunted with them for so long that I hunt over other dogs and other people take them out and they're hacking on them on their whistles and doing all this stuff. And it's just like, I kind of forget that, that when I had my Brittany way, you know, years ago, that's kind of what it was like. And then my Brittany yeah. would run away and, you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, those are, those are, you mentioned a lot of sort of characteristics that I think people are, people are looking for in a dog. So, you know, to, to have dogs that, that do that. I, I know I was, um, you know, the, the, when I've got my first dog, which wasn't too long ago, a couple, three, four years, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of people sort of lead me in, in the right direction in that it was, you want to say as little to your dog as possible. I mean, ultimately, you want to you want that dog to be hunting with you for you and and for that to not require uh, a lot of communication with the dog and and my dog is my dog is is like that for the most part and it's yeah I, I've hunted with I've hunted with both types you know you got there's yellers and screamers out there and hackers and it's uh I certainly get more enjoyment out of uh, out of the uh, less communication less communication the better yeah absolutely you should hunt as a team and your dog, like you said, the, your dog should hunt with you. Um, it shouldn't be independent, uh, but it also shouldn't be a bootlicker. You know, you don't. The idea, you know, there's this there's this misconception uh, out there that you want a uh, a dog that's for a you know a walking hunter or a foot hunter, and so you run into these dogs that are like you run into these pointing dogs that are like fifty yard dogs, and to me. Birds within 50 yards, I could probably push myself, you know, or yeah. if you're going to, if you want a dog that close, you could get a springer. I want a dog that's out 150. If you're out West, maybe you could go to two. That's hunting objectives. That's going and finding birds and then holding and pointing when it finds them. And I'll go find the dog. I'm not worried about my dogs running off. I'm not worried about losing them. Um, you know, so that, I, that's, that's where I like them. I don't, I, you know, I've hunted over dogs that are much bigger runners that are three to 500 yards. And that's a little too far. Cause then when they go on point and just, especially when you're grouse hunting, it could take 15 minutes to find the dogs and you're running after them and stuff. I don't, I don't like running after points, but yeah. So. Yeah. And, the, and, uh, I'm sure you found this as, you know, the longer, uh, the further away a dog points a grouse in the grouse woods, the further away it is when he establishes point, you know, takes you longer to get there. It's, that grouse grouse has a lot of opportunities to uh, to slink off one way or another and and flush out ahead or do something unless that dog's truly got him pinned, which is which is obviously awesome. But but uh, when they get out there too far, the those grouse they uh, they don't like to put up with too much. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean if, if it takes you twenty minutes to get to a point, that bird's probably gonna 
most likely is going to either run out of it or, you know, it's going to flush on its own or something. It's pretty rare that you're going to find a fine grouse that will sit for that long. Unless, you know, unless, like you said, the less a dog uh, pins it, but that doesn't happen that often. I've hunted over a lot of dogs in a lot of situations. It <laughs> happens, but not, not as often as you'd like. So. Yeah. It's, it's amazing when it does happen, but, but yeah, exactly. It's a, uh, doesn't doesn't happen certainly not with every every bird and every point that's for sure well i can uh i can absolutely see us getting sidetracked here talking uh pointing dogs and and grouse so we'll uh we'll shift gears a little bit and bring us back on to the the main topic of conversation so you you talked a little bit about you know how you how you transitioned uh into double guns and uh you know, sort of how that fueled your passion and inspired you a little bit. And eventually that led to dogsanddoubles.com. So talk a, talk a little bit about how, you know, how your love of, of double guns led to the blog and sort of, you know, that that's, I mean, you can tell the story of how long it's, how long it's been up and running, but you, you post good gun alerts there and stuff. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I've had the blog, I think for just about 10 years, this might be my I think like April might be the 10 year anniversary, which is insane. And I didn't even realize it had been, it had been that long. I was just doing some work on it and I was looking back through old posts and I realized it. <laughs> um, and the only reason I, I started doing it just because I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to push out information about the guns. Um, there wasn't, there wasn't any, there, you know, there's magazines out there and stuff like that. There's books, but there isn't, there wasn't anything in the blog format where anybody was just pushing out. Uh, regular information, everything from, uh, like I have those good gun alerts and auction alerts. That's basically just stuff that I see out there in the marketplace when it comes up. Um, if I see nice guns that are at fair prices, I put them on my blog just because I'm trying to, you know, obviously I want, I want to help other people get into this, this hobby. You know, uh, I want to show other people that, um, you can get nice side-by-side classic American side-by-sides. I mean, you can buy them for less than you can buy a Benelli. Uh, there's a perception out there that these guns are incredibly expensive. Some of them are incredibly expensive, but not all of them are. And you can get into them for less money than most people realize. Um, and so that was part of what I wanted to do. And then also I just wanted to, um, share what I've learned and then also connect with other people. So the, the biggest thing I've done through the blog is I've just, con- I've connected with the people all over the world and I've made contacts with other collectors. Um, I've helped a lot of people. Uh, buy their first like vintage side by side. I've connected with collectors who've taught me um, about guns I didn't know anything about. Um, it's open doors to. Uh, I've been to London and I've visited gun makers and done stuff like that. The blogs open doors like that. Uh, you know, it led me to the project Upland to you guys. Um, and then the other thing it's helped me do is I've actually done some stuff where. I help people who have uh, families that have collections of guns. I've been helping them sell the collections. You know, there's, there's different ways to monetize a collection of guns. And I have a lot of experience with auction, like auction companies and um, basically how to get the most money for your guns. I have a lot, big background in that kind of stuff. I used to work for a gun shop called New England Arms, which is this famous gun shop in Kittery, Maine. But I just know how to do that. And I've, I help people do that. And that's all come just from this little blog that I have, you know, and I used to post to it a couple days a week and then I try to do it in every day and I, I've been on and off. Sometimes I have good stretches where I'll post every day. Sometimes I'll, you know, I'll get busy with uh, the other things I do in life and it'll, it'll be down for a week. Uh, so 
all sorts of stuff happens on it. A couple years ago, I had a whole bunch of stuff about, I used to hunt in South Dakota a lot. And uh, South Dakota, this is probably four or five years ago now, um, a lot of the, C, they lost a ton of CRP. And uh, as they were, they just lost a ton of huntable land throughout the whole state. Um, a lot of, you know, tons of it was just getting converted to basically grow more corn. And the whole state was just having, basically the, the pheasant hunting out there was dying. And uh, I put up a bunch of posts on my blog about, you know, are the Dakotas dying? And I talked to, you know, I, I, I had been out there and seen the demise of the hunting. I had talked to other people that, you know, had the same experience. And those posts got all sorts of traction. I know the governor's office actually uh saw the posts and they responded to them and they were very uh worried that you know pheasant hunting in south dakota is obviously a huge uh huge source of tourism income and uh it that information you know i i was on that story and then some other uh people picked it up it was in the shooting sportsman the state was actually forced to respond to these to what was happening there. And they were supposed to come up with some kind of development plan to stop it. I don't think they ever did, but <laughs> it was, but again, it's just a, it's just a, an, in, a, a, an example of how powerful my dumb little blog could be. You know, it just was able to, it was able to get that interest spurred and, uh, get people, get people talking. So all through that. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly the world we live in. Any, uh, anything from anybody can go viral at, at any time. So that's kind of a, it's kind of a curious thing. And, uh, the dogsanddoubles.com, I mean, you, you know, I, you mentioned, you mentioned that, you know, you basically started it to sort of connect people, um, inspire people a little bit, but, but connect with people. And that's really, uh, I think that's really the beauty of a lot of this stuff is if you just put yourself out there and you put your interests out there, um, you know, that's, that's the luxury that we have today and that you can, it's a lot easier to connect with people, uh, of a like mind or that, that share the same interests. And, and clearly, uh, uh, that's, that's happened with dogs and doubles and, and things like project Upland and, and, you know, various other Upland hunting blogs that are out there. It's, it's very cool that, uh, that we have those opportunities today. Yeah, it's amazing too because I was I was talking about this uh, with a friend the other day, another guy who's into guns. The amount of stuff, the the amount of information that's out there today is it's unprecedented. So right now we have access to more information about guns and dogs and places to hunt than any other time anyone has ever had in the world, you know. And it used to be if guys who were into guns, they would go to gun shows. There would be, you know, uh, there was a there's a gun show in Vegas, the Antique Arms Show. Used to be a huge show; thousands of people would go. There would be—I um, don't know if you ever go to like the little regional gun shows they have around. There used to be uh, like a show in Albany that was really popular. But basically, if you were into guns, you would go to some gun shops that, near your house. You'd go to some of these gun shows, and if you were really into it, you might go out to Vegas and go to the gun show. But you didn't have an opportunity to see a lot of stuff, like you. You just didn't like if you were if you wanted to buy a purdy, you just didn't see purdies very often. You know, they just yeah. just the nature of it. There weren't you. There just weren't that many around. Nowadays, if I if I want to find out a purdy, I go to I go to some website, I punch it in, and there's 200 of them. You know, and I can go <laughs> on and I can look through them. And th- because of that, because of the power of the internet, that has uh, I think it has just ex- it's exploded the amount of. Uh, resources that we have available to us. And I know personally me, I spend an enormous amount of time online looking at, looking at guns and that's what's taught me so much about them. I can, because I can look at, 
I can look at different guns from different periods and can compare them to one another and I can see variations in them and all those things. And, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you, you just couldn't do that. You just, you just didn't have access to this stuff. And it's the same thing with the dogs and all that stuff. Like I lived in Northern New Hampshire when I was a kid and there were guys up there who were hunting with setters and field trialing. I never once talked to any of them. I never heard about them, never knew a thing. I didn't even know they existed, you know? And it was happening, you know, in the same town. And, um, but now with the internet, I talk to guys all over the country about dogs and about hunting. And so, uh, it, I think we're a lot of ways, we're really fortunate that we, we can connect and do all these things. So, yeah, I totally agree with you, Greg. And, and, uh, that's, that's why you and I are talking today. And, and that's why we're not only talking, but we're recording this <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we'll publish it and, uh, Hey, maybe somebody will learn something, but all right. So, so. Let's uh, we'll we'll re- rewind a little bit, kind of back to basics. Now we've got, say we've got somebody listening. They they they're carrying a you know their eight seventy express or whatever whatever gun they have. They've never really thought about vintage guns because, and I say this because this was pretty much me, um, you know, three four years ago. I didn't know anything about vintage guns or, and really, it wasn't wasn't too long ago where I I even got my first over under. So. Um, they're, they're thinking about it like, you know, what is this big wide market of, of double guns? Um, there's, you know, there's upland hunting guns and there's target shooting guns. There's, there's differences there, but let's say somebody wants to go out and buy a bird gun. Uh, you know, where do, where do they start with, hopefully that's not just totally too vague, but, but where do we start if we want to go out and buy a vintage upland bird hunting gun where we're trying to we're trying to obviously not trying to break the bank. We want to, we want to get some value. We want to buy a nice, nice quality gun, but one that we can bring out into the field and use. Uh, yeah. I mean that, so it all starts for me. I think I first, uh, I would want to like, uh, for vintage stuff, I think, you know, you could start with, uh, a good choice is, uh, like a Browning superposed, a 20 gauge Browning superposed. Those, um, the ones that were made up into the, the early sixties, but they you know, that started making the twenties and the fifties and up into the sixties. That's a good place for a lot of guys to start. Um, you can pick up one of those guns for 2,500 bucks. They're over unders. A lot of guys today are used to shooting over and unders. So it's a, it's an easy transition into one of those guns. Um, they're really well made and you're starting to get, because they're, you know, they, they're, they are kind of old. You're starting it to get into that vintage feel. They're also uh, stocked a lot like uh, more modern guns, so a lot of guys yeah. find them easy to shoot. And as you go back from there, uh, you start getting into side-by-sides. And a good place to start, you know, the common place for people to start with uh, vintage side-by-sides is they start with like a Fox Sterlingworth yeah. or uh, a Parker Trojan or uh, Ithaca NID. And those are all, um, Ithaca NIDs are from the 30s. Um, Parker Trojans and the Fox Sterling, which for the most part are, you know, from after World War, uh, World War One and uh, through World War Two. Uh, but those are all guns, you know, the Ithacas and the Sterlingworths. Can you get those? Are those are usually up to about twenty five hundred bucks. Trojans are about the same price, and all those guns are uh, they're very uh, incredibly, you know, very usable today. They do, most of them will have like uh, short chambers in them. They'll have two and a half inch chambers. That ammo is easy to get. Um, there's a lot of those guns available. If you go online to some of the websites out there, like Guns International, you'll see tons of those guns uh, for sale. And uh, 
typically what happens is those are like the first guns that a guy gets. Um, if you're really into the American mystique, you know, guys love Parkers and they'll get a, they'll get a Parker Trojan or the, a VH, which is the next model up. Um, they'll start out with one of those in 16 and 20 gauge and they'll shoot those for a while and then they'll want something nicer. Um, same thing with the Foxes. They'll go to Sterlingworth, play with one of those for a few years. Um, you know, they, those guns, uh, they tend the stocks have a little more drop in them than what most people today are used to shooting. So sometimes guys adapt to them. Sometimes guys will shoot those for a while and then realize they want something that has stock dimensions on it that are a little better. So they'll switch to something else. Uh, but all those guns are a, a great place to sort of get your feet wet in vintage guns and also to sort of learn the market for them, uh, how to buy them, what to look for. Uh, because these guns are old, uh, they've all had plenty of time for people to mess with them. And uh, so it's really important as you get into buying this stuff to sort of learn about condition, uh, what original condition is, what to look for um, as far as what people uh, tend to mess with and what could be refinished. All that stuff impacts its value a lot. Um, so that, that American stuff's a good place to sort of get an introduction to all that. You're not gonna you're not gonna lose, you know, lose your shirt buying one of them if you you know come to find out that you something you, you you know you didn't spot something and you made a mistake or something like that. Uh you know, it's not like buying purdies or something like that. So yeah, cool. That's a that's a that's a kind of a great precursor. Um so so you mentioned both over unders in, in brownings and uh shut up. Sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. That's uh this is a hunting dog podcast, so uh, we uh, we accept that stuff. Uh, so, and and then we got into side by sides. Now, over unders, they side by sides came first. Over unders came later. I, I'd be kind of curious if you know sort of when that injection of the over under happened, and then and then more importantly, um, what's your take on it? So, you know, say you got a listener that that you know he's shooting an over under. Like for me, it was it it took me a while to sort of get over the. I don't know. I just side by sides. I didn't immediately look at a side by side and say that is a game shooting gun much in the way that I look at it now. I didn't always look at it that way. And it took me a while to get over this sort of hump, I guess, if you will, that I actually wanted one. Um, so I guess hit on that a little bit and sort of what your take is on over under side by side. What do you prefer? I mean, it's always a fun debate. Well, so the, oh, there's over and unders have been around for as long as uh, side by sides have been around. Okay. So if you go back to uh, flint locks, I mean they've they've always had over and unders. Um, what happened is it probably uh, so once you move into sort of what you call like the hammerless center fire gun. So that's basically yep. shotguns that use um, ammunition, to, like modern style ammunition. Um, yep. You start to see like your first over unders. Uh, about 1900, and the Germans started making them. Even though there were some companies that made them before them, the first companies, the first place where they really become uh, mass produced is in Germany. Um, the, and but they don't become popular over here in the U.S. probably until the 20s. Um, and basically, they're really expensive. Uh, Boss started making a Boss, a, a British gun maker. I think they started making their over and under in 1909. Um, Woodward, another British gun maker, soon followed. But these guns cost, uh, you know, they cost as much as a house back then. They were fantastically, you know, the most expensive wow. guns you could buy. There were some German companies, like Merkel was making some. Um, and, and there were companies importing the U.S. Again, these guns were really expensive. They were as expensive as pretty much, 
excuse me, the most expensive American and stuff. So it didn't really catch on until uh, Browning made, started making super posts. And that was in the 30s. Um, they made the 12s first, and then they started making 20s. Those were the first uh, over-unders that most Americans saw. And they were mass-produced. The price were expensive guns, but they weren't outrageously expensive. Um, and those were the guns that started catching on with Americans. Those were the guns that you could go into, you know, a, a nice gun shop, and they would have Browning superposts on the rack. Uh, so that was sort of the first exposure a lot of guys had to them. And then Beretta started bringing their over and unders. They started making OUs, I think, in the 30s. Um, their guns started coming in in the 50s. So guys started to see more of them. And then uh, Ithaca started bringing some in, and then Parazzi. So that was when, that was when the, the over-unders started coming into the market. And that was the same time when side-by-sides, a lot of them fell out of favor. Um, I think people, for whatever reason, people just saw uh, those guns as, I think they just maybe saw them as old-fashioned. A lot of those gun makers um, went out of business uh, either before, I think right after World War II. Um, yeah. So that's, there's a transition that goes on there. Um, and then today, obviously, you know, everybody, it seems like everybody starts off with, uh, see, over and unders are definitely far more popular than side-by-sides. Um, I don't, there aren't that many companies out there still making um, side-by-sides, at least at the lower price point. You know, there's definitely more companies making the, uh, making over-unders. Um, as far as shooting them goes, I don't notice a huge difference in them. I think the, uh, I had a, a Parazzi target gun. And uh, I shot that gun really well. And that, that was one of the first, that, I think that was the first target OU I ever owned. And I noticed it seemed like it was a little more precise to shoot. And I think that might have been because when you look down, at, when you look down a side by side, you sort of have this big chunk of barrels and it's really wide. Yep. And you don't have that with an over and under. You have just one barrel. And even though when you shoot a shotgun, you're not supposed to really aim it, you kind of point shotguns you still see that, that end of the barrel that's still, it's, it's still kind of in your sight plane. And when you're taking really long shots, especially if you're taking shots like a crossing shot, you're still going to judge, you still bring the barrels through the target and past it. And I was always thinking in my head that uh, because an over and under has a smaller sight plane, I was, my handling of the gun was more precise and that's why I, I tended to shoot over the over and unders better on targets. And I don't know if any of that's true. Uh, but yeah. it, it just kind of worked. And I wouldn't be, <laughs> and the other thing is a lot of guys today, like the first double barrel gun they're exposed to is an over under. Um, yeah. And once you get used to shooting one over the other, I think there is uh, a lot of apprehension about going the other way, like picking up a side by side, because uh, it can take a little while to learn to shoot it well. I think that's why you don't see them on the target, the target world anymore, because no one who shoots, uh, you know, no one who's brought up or introduced to shooting, um, you know, like shooting bunker trap or something like sporting clays. For the most part, people either shoot auto loaders or they shoot over unders. No one's shooting side by sides from a young age and growing up with them and learning how to shoot them. Um, and then once you're used to, you know, once you're a competitive shooter, you're not going to switch over to another gun to try something new. You know what you're doing, you're going to stick with that. You have all the nuances yeah. that worked out. Um, guys used to shoot uh, side side-by-sides competitively you know they used to shoot them in the olympics they used to shoot them really well uh so it's i i think it's it's more a matter of what you're used to and um how much you want to put into switching over to something else 
Uh, I don't see, as far as game bird shooting, I don't see that much of a difference, really. I just like side-by-sides. I, you know, I have over and unders, too. I just, I like them all, and, uh, but I just, the thing that always intrigued me about side-by-sides is they're just such weird guns. You know, they've got two barrels sitting right <laughs> next to each other, and then they've got, you know, a lot of times they have two triggers, you know. You see over and unders out there with two triggers, but for the most part, they have one trigger. And they always just seem such, such strange guns to me. That's what I think I found alluring about them. I don't know, I don't know that one's better than the other in any way. Yeah. You know, I think you can, there's people who will argue there's pros and cons to either of them, but I don't know at the end, I don't, I really don't know how much that impacts the, uh, the shooter's success at, you know, when actually in the field over, um, people just trying to rationalize how they, you know, how they're able to shoot with one over the other. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you, you hit on a lot of great points and I've, I've, I've done some reading on sort of the, yeah, maybe it was in, maybe it was in a Macintosh book on, you know, the, the history of the Fox or something. I don't know, but done some reading on, you know, how over-unders sort of overtook the target shooting competition world and, and they are firmly implanted there and it is what it is. But the, you know, like I, I, uh, I have seen a demonstration by Andy Duffy, who was a, he was a professional sporting clays shooter, maybe still is, I guess. Um, but he, you know, a guy like him, he could pick up an over under or a side by side, and he's gonna he's gonna break, you know, ten times the ten times the clays that I'm gonna break. Doesn't matter what he's using, but but his personal preference was, you know, he always shot over unders on for competition, I think. And and but I remember him saying at this demonstration that you know when he was shooting shooting live game, he he really enjoyed the the wider sight plane of a side by side, and that's what he liked to shoot at birds. So mm-hmm. it's. I think the, the the margin of difference is is pretty slight, and it, and it comes down to overall technique, you know, gun fit, you know, how how well you're shooting. Like if you shoot an over under and a side by side equally well, it's probably uh, you know pick your poison. You're gonna you're gonna probably do okay with either one, um, as long as all else is equal as far as fit and and function and all that stuff. So it's it's interesting, and and I like I think you mentioned you know that you side by sides were kind of strange, and I think. For, for whatever reason, that's the feeling that I had too. I wasn't introduced to them at a young age and I was just sort of looked at them, you know, like El- Elmer Fudd, he carried a side by side with right. big, big, big bulbous barrels. And, and it's just, you, you have these weird perceptions, but now, I mean, I've handled enough, um, you know, some really sleek, well-balanced, well-balanced guns. And man, there's just something about, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on side by sides right now. And I, I don't really see that changing for for uh, for game shooting. I really really enjoy it. But again, all that to say, it's it's a it's a personal preference thing for the most part. Yeah, I don't think there's anything. I don't think there either design is uh, is superior to the other. I think yep. the uh, the thing about um, over and unders is just uh, to get uh, you, so you can get a really well made brand new like you can get a really well made Parazzi target gun for you know. Uh, you can buy used one for five grand if you know where to, where to find them, and that's a great gun. It's a great target gun. You can, you know, you can shoot. You can put a couple hundred thousand rounds for that thing and not worry about them. They're just good, solid, reliable guns. And to get a side by side to do that is harder because most side by sides are just older guns. You're not gonna, you don't find as many uh, side by sides that were made in the '60s and '70s. That's just the peak for the golden era of side by sides is pretty much up to like the, into the '30s. Um, they definitely made them after that, but it's just, it's just for the most part, 
that's not when they made the, uh, the, the most stuff or the best stuff. So. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll s- sort of slide along here. Um, looking at kind of a bit of an outline that, that, uh, we worked on. So I guess, you know, you mentioned some of the, uh, you mentioned some of the some of the websites that people can go sort of peruse these guns. I've spent plenty of time on Gun Broker and Guns yeah. International. Um, I guess you know if you if you don't really know anything and you're looking at these guns, you know there's certain things to consider that you mentioned. Original condition. What's what's your opinion on on original condition? Knowing that there's a difference between a straight collector purchase. Or at least you can tell me if there's not a uh, difference between a straight collector purchase and then and then a gun that you want to use. I mean, can you, you know, say something has been restocked, but but you know enough to figure out the dimensions. I mean, are you are you gonna, you know, how strict are you on original condition and sort of what are you looking for? What kind of value can you squeeze out of you know those variables? Yeah. So the thing about so old guns, uh, the ones that are uh, worth the most money are always the ones in the most original condition. Uh, so the idea, so obviously if you have two guns, one's, uh, you know, all original and it has 90% of its original finish and you have a gun that is totally refinished and has a hundred percent of its, uh, new applied finishes, the original one's always worth more. Uh, and regardless of what anybody tells you, original condition is king. That's all, that's, that's the most important thing. And it's not just, it, it, for any gun to hold its value, it has to have as much original condition as possible. If you're a shooter, um, obviously it's not, refinished guns um, are fine, but the way I always look at it is when I buy something, I wanna, um, I wanna be able to sell it down the line for at least what, I've, what I have into it. Um, okay. Hopefully I wanna sell it for more. And the guns that always stand the best chance of appreciating are the ones that are all original. Now, if I've bought stuff that's been refinished and stuff, but I've never, I've always paid, uh, I've always gotten a deal on it because of that, you know? So if you can get discounts, if you pay less for something that's refinished, I think it's okay to buy refinished. As long as you understand that you're buying refinished stuff and you understand how that impacts the value of the item. And you're okay with it. If you're just looking for something to shoot, uh, you know, redone barrels, refinished wood, that kind of stuff's fine. Um, as long as you don't pay original gun prices for it. Uh, so that's why it's so important to be able to learn to spot uh, what reblued barrels look like, what refinished wood look, looks like, what recolored actions look like. Because people refinish stuff, and then a lot of times they'll try to pass it off as original. And you need to be able to spot that stuff. And so that you can understand uh, what you're actually purchasing and you can value it appropriately. Um, that's why, so that, that, and I know that as a, when you're, when you first get into this stuff, that kind of stuff can be a little daunting. There's a lot, so there's a ton of information about these guns that you have to, you have to know and understand. And the best way to uh, sort of protect yourself or inform yourself when you're buying these things is I always use a gunsmith that is really knowledgeable about vintage guns. And when you buy stuff online, um, you always have a three-day inspection, or you know you should always get a three-day inspection with anything you buy. Yep. And I have everything sent to my gunsmith. 
And he looks at it and he tells me what the deal with it is. You know, he, he charges me to inspect stuff, but he is the person that vets stuff for me. Yeah. And he tells me uh, what the deal with it is. And then if I want to move forward with it, I can. If I don't want it, I send it back. And uh, it happens just about everything I buy, there's a problem with it that the seller didn't mention. And it's either, and the sellers aren't necessarily lying to me or misleading me. It's just that the knowledge about this stuff, there's just a lot of people who sell stuff just don't really understand what they have either, you know? Yep, yep. Um, so that's why, like, the number one most important thing if you want to buy old guns is you got to get someone on your side who is an expert in them, who will look at them for you, and who will tell you what's wrong, who will tell you what's right and what's wrong about them and help you understand uh, what you're dealing with. And it's tough to find a gun, like a gunsmith in your area who has that type of knowledge. Um, and it's definitely one of the things that's sort of a hindrance to getting into these. The other thing you can do is you can look into, uh, you can try to deal with, try to buy from dealers that are reputable. Uh, in all honesty, I don't know, there aren't, there aren't really any gun dealers out there I trust though. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Um, there's just, sim there's simply way to, there's, there's money to be made in, uh, not, uh, I don't want to say lying, but not telling the whole story about guns. Um, and again, gun dealers make mistakes. Uh, they don't always know everything. So, uh, so I wouldn't, there's always, a, there's a lot of questions you can ask gun dealers. You can, a lot of questions you can ask sellers, but even when you get all the answers to all those questions, you still need to have a gunsmith look stuff over before you close the deal. Just because the person you're buying from uh, may not know exactly how to answer your question. They may give you the wrong answer um, and you need to protect yourself. Because, you know, I learned a lot of this stuff because I didn't do gunsmiths early on and I just, I would buy stuff and I would think it was one thing and then I would take it to sell it and uh, I would suddenly find out that the barrels had been reblued or the stock had been refinished or the checkering had been recut and all those things would impact its value. And all of a sudden I got, I ended up buying something and now I'm selling it and I'm losing money, you know, and that sucks. No one wants to lose money. Yep. That's how, that's yep. how I learned a lot of those lessons early on. Basically, uh, you know, I lost money and that's a great way to learn, but it's also a great way to go broke. So you want, you want to avoid that. But, uh, yeah. All right. Cool. So a uh, couple, couple things that I, that I thought of now. Um, so, so obviously number one, you know, we talked about original condition and then sort of number two, um, having, having a gunsmith that you know, and you trust, uh, wherever he may be and, and take advantage of that. You know, if you're buying things long distance like this, take advantage of that three day inspection period. Um, like you said, to have somebody on your side, uh, with that's that's looking at the purchase objectively that that makes a ton of sense um any other you know as far as the top one two three things uh in buying old guns uh would there what would be what would be number three i guess behind those two well so you mean as far as what to look for in the old guns i would yeah, uh, I, th I think so yeah yep so the first thing you want to look for is so uh i guess i i would want you want to make sure the gun somewhat fits you okay so what you're going to find in a lot of old guns, especially old American stuff, is the stocks are about 14 inches long, and they're going to have up to three inches of drop in them. Most guys today, most DOUs and stuff that guys shoot, those guns have you know 14 and a half inches length of pull, and they probably have you know at the most two and a half inches of drop. Yep. 
So the old guns fit differently. So the biggest thing you have to look for is you want to try, try to find one that actually comes closer to fitting you, has closer dimensions to what you're looking for. American stuff, that can be tough to find because, again, people back then, a lot of the American stuff, uh, the stocks just had a lot of drop. People shot guns with a lot of drop in them back then. I don't know how they did it. I suspect people held their heads up high when they shot. They didn't, they didn't bring their cheeks to the comb uh, like a lot of people do now. Uh, but regardless, so that's, that's one thing you want to look for. Cause if you get a really nice old gun and you can't hit anything with it, it's really not going to do you any good. You know, um, the next thing to look for, uh, again, like I said, you want to look for, uh, once you find stuff that has dimensions you can deal with, you want to make sure it's in good original, you know, sound mechanical condition. Um, so that's, that's another reason to have a gunsmith look at it. It's not just to have them look it over to make sure the finishes are correct and no one's trying to mislead you. It's also to have them look it over to make sure um, the gun is tightened on the face, uh, the barrels are in good shape, the walls are thick enough, the chambers haven't been messed with, so all those things. You want to make sure the gun's in good mechanical condition. Um, and then after that, I always, uh, I always just want to make sure the gun is properly suited to what I want to do with it. So if uh, I'm going to be shooting grouse and woodcock with it, um, I don't want, you know, a seven and a half pound 12 gauge, you know, I want a gun that's like a six and a quarter to six and a half pounds. Um, just because I'm going to be carrying it all day. I don't like guns that are really light, Like I don't like guns that are, you know, once you get much under six pounds because, uh, they're nice to carry, but I can't shoot them really well. Sure. So I like, you know, so that's, those are the things I kind of look for. If I want a gun that I'm going to be shooting targets with, then I want something heavier because I'm going to be shooting heavier loads through it. Um, you know, obviously I'm not going to be dragging it in the field all day. Same thing if I'm going to be, if you want something to shoot, uh, um, ducks, or if you want to shoot turkeys with them, I have a big, heavy 12 gauge that I shoot turkeys with. Uh, and I shoot pretty, you know, pretty like one and a quarter ounce loads out of it. So they're pretty stout loads. I wouldn't want to shoot that out of the gun I shoot grouse with because the gun would just pound on me. Uh, you know, even though I'm not shooting that many rounds, it's still not, uh, the best gun for that. So those are the things to kind of keep an, keep an eye on and, you know, look out for original condition. Um, does it fit you? Uh, and what are you going to be using it for? So. Cool. Excellent. I think that's, that's, uh, that's, you know, great information for, for people really, I mean, really at any point in this process of their, you know, sort of the learning stages of, uh, of, uh, vintage double guns. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the, kind of the buying process, I guess, because I have, we'll use, well, we can use really any gun for an example, but I, I, uh, I've been looking at a lot of, you know, I look at a lot of Fox shotguns, um, guns international gun broker or whatever. And I look at Parker's too. I mean, I look at all of them and I think this probably applies, but bottom line, you see a price, uh, and, and guns that are listed on, on these sites, uh, they could be, they could be a dealer. They can be a gun shop. They could be an individual, all sorts of stuff. So you see things across the board and you, you learn by looking at numbers of listings. You know, you just keep looking and looking and looking and you'll see things and you, each listing is another data point for condition of the gun, uh, measurements, all that stuff. And then, and then you see a price. Now, oftentimes the, I feel like the prices that I see listed on guns, international gun broker, are sort of uh people can't see me talking so they're sort of higher 
I guess. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then you go on. I go on Facebooks or Facebook or forums, and you hear about the guy that he bought a Fox Sterling worth for you know a thousand bucks or eleven hundred, eleven twelve hundred bucks. Now I don't know anything specifically about that gun, but I just feel like over time you hear about the the actual deals that get made are for in often cases significantly less than the prices you see um, online. So talk about the price that's listed on these websites and sort of what sort of room for negotiation there is. How do you approach that? Well, so all the so anything that's online that's from a dealer, they're going to be asking for the most part they're going to ask top dollar for for everything. Um, yeah. obviously they're in the business of making as much money as possible. Um, they have to make, you know, a certain they probably want to make 50% on anything uh, they sell, so they want to, you know, you know if they pay 1000 for it, they want to make they want to sell it for 1500 bucks. Um, yep. So in any of those prices that you see out there, I would always consider them to be negotiable. Uh, all the prices are negotiable because it, it, that's just the way the business is. It's uh, those are the I, I always consider the prices that you see. Uh, those are the dealers. Um, that's what they'd like to get. That's not what they'll take, you know. And a lot of times with guns that I see online, I'll watch stuff, and if you know, unless it's unless it's something really special, uh, I'll let it sit there for six months. Hold on one second. Sorry. No problem. No problem. Hold on. I got There's someone at my back door. Hold on. That, that's all right. All right, everybody. You heard one of Greg's dogs barking, and that means this is the end of part one of our interview. We will schedule the interview part two with Greg Elliott of DogsAndDoubles.com very soon. You will hear that in the coming weeks. Don't forget, Project Dublin podcast contest giveaway is going on right now. Rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, review the podcast, share the podcast, any or all of those things. Get yourself entered. You're not going to want to miss out. Project Upland Podcast giveaway going on right now. That's all I got for you. As always, Project Upland Podcast brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm out. Have a good one. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.